Exodus chapter 11. If you're turning to chapter 11 in the book of Exodus, to remind you where we are in the story, it all comes down to one plague. As we come to the plague of the firstborn, the tenth, of, tenth and final plague, we are reaching the capstone, as it were, of this whole ordeal. How did we get here? Sometimes it looked as though we wouldn't get here. Sometimes it looked as though Pharaoh might have been getting the message. As throughout the plagues, he asked for prayer. He begged for relief. He confessed his sin. He even spoke of repentance. And yet, as we've seen through this journey, with every seeming step forward, Pharaoh has always taken two steps backward. Changing his mind. Granting conditional release. Breaking his word. And ultimately remaining unconvinced. The inconsistency of Pharaoh and his responses to the plagues reveals surprisingly a consistency of principle, a core of self-assertiveness and independence. For Pharaoh to surrender would mean the end of his claim to ultimate self-sufficient power. With the climax of the plagues, with the death of the firstborn of Egypt, the stakes are being raised as Pharaoh seeks to still keep control over Israel, over Egypt, at a dear price. Sadly, as we will hear, Pharaoh will insist on continuing to be hard-hearted. Pharaoh will resist the inevitable, careless of the cost, even unto death. Beloved, from Exodus chapter 11. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be a loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all your people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This conversation is the continuation, the other side, as it were, of the conversation between Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh that we ended with last week. Seemingly at the end of chapter 10, we had had all of what was said between them, but now we're given um, some more information, some information that God gave to Moses before this conversation, that in the midst of this final talk, 
This final confrontation Moses now imparts to Pharaoh. As Pharaoh angrily dismisses Moses and Aaron, and by extension dismisses the Lord from his presence, Moses lays out for him how this is all going to finally end. Pharaoh's arrogance and pride are about to take him and his people past the point of no return. The stakes, as I mentioned before, are being raised to their limit. Death is coming to the land of Egypt. Now, I don't know how many Metallica fans are out there, um, but Metallica has a song called Creeping Death. And this song came about because while the bassist Cliff Burton was watching the 1956 classic film, The Ten Commandments, he was watching it and there's this scene when this tenth plague comes and as the fog rolls in and killing the Egyptian firstborn sons, Cliff Burton literally said out loud while he was watching it, look, creeping death. And from that point, a song was inspired. And most of the lyrics in this song, for those of you, again, who are Metallica fans, I won't ask. I'd be really curious, but I won't ask. <laughs> most of the lyrics in this song are taken directly from the Bible or from the movie. Four of the ten plagues are mentioned in the song. Blood, darkness, hail to fire. This, this, the point of view of the song, the lyrics are written from the point of view of the destroyer, the tenth plague, the one who killed the firstborn. Now, if you've ever been to a Metallica concert, and I won't ask that... <sighs> If you've ever been to a Metallica concert, when they play this song, Creeping Death, the crowd will shout the wailing cry, die, 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 of the chorus. It's a sobering moment in the concert. It's, there, it's a, it's a, it may be, you may think, man, if I never went to a Metallica concert, I'm never going now. But the lyrics of this song, the tone of it, and the response to the crowd at a concert is a fitting picture of what is coming. The shadow of death will be creeping into Egypt. And if you were listening carefully, notice the far-reaching effect of this final blow of the tenth plague. As the shadow descends, even the Israelites will not automatically be spared by the Lord. As death comes to strike the firstborn of man and beast. Previous plagues had shown partiality, sparing the Jews in the midst of Egypt. The tenth plague, however, will be completely impartial. Merits of innocence and guilt will not be considered. We're told that the, the plague will strike Pharaoh's throne, but it will also be as far as the slave girl who is behind the millstones. This is a, an actually an Egyptian saying, and its usage is meant to imply it will go to the poorest of the poor. This plague will come upon everyone from Pharaoh's family on down. Irony is discernible in this telling of what is coming. Under the burden of slavery that often resulted in death, Israel, as we know, cried out repeatedly to the Lord and cried out repeatedly to Pharaoh. But now, as the chains of their oppression are finally about to break, it is the Egyptians and Pharaoh who will give a great outcry. Moses foretells that it will be the Egyptian people who will come to him and beg him to leave with all his people. With this plague, the reversal of roles, the shift in the balance of power will be complete. Moses came before Pharaoh first as just another subject of the empire. But Moses will leave the presence of Pharaoh as his superior. As the hand of God that brought Egypt to her knees. And if that irony isn't enough, the irony becomes tragic when the same vigor with which Pharaoh first resisted the departure of the Israelites, will come around as Pharaoh with that same passion will compel them to depart the land of Egypt and never come back. Beloved, you would have thought that Pharaoh would have seen this coming. 
that this is where things were going to end up, that he was fighting a losing battle. In one sense, still, as we come to the 10th plague, the obstinacy of Pharaoh is surprising in light of the destructiveness of the first nine plagues, what he has seen up to this point. But then again, and it begs repeating, Pharaoh's stubbornness is a sobering reflection of humanity's willingness to risk total destruction rather than bow to God's sovereignty. Death comes to us all, even Pharaoh. It's important we also notice here that Moses delivers this news with no joy, with no sense of vindication or triumph. You'd think after all of this, all the plagues, all the head games, all the broken promises, all the threats, all the indecision, that Moses would take some measure of satisfaction, some sense of accomplishment from this being the knockout punch, the definitive proof that once and for all, God wins and Pharaoh loses. But in fact... We are told that after giving this final message, Moses leaves Pharaoh not rejoicing, not smug or prideful, but rather Moses leaves burning with anger. Moses felt angry. It's curious, isn't it? Beloved, I believe that Moses was angry because of the tragedy that was unfolding before him. I think that Moses was angry because of the hard-heartedness that led Egypt to this dead end. I'm convinced that Moses was angry because he realized that Pharaoh's willful disobedience had unleashed an even greater enemy, the specter, the sting of death. Moses burned with anger because Pharaoh's purposeful ignorance was going too far. Pharaoh was refusing to face what cannot be avoided, what must not be avoided. The cold, hard reality of death. I know I'm starting to sound like a broken record, but once again, I need to say this out loud. Once again, we need to see that there are too many of us who act just like Pharaoh. In fact, I think Pharaoh's disposition, particularly with this 10th plague, reflects a universal posture of humankind. Our denial of death. Ernst Becker, a few years back, wrote an award-winning book called The Denial of Death. And in that book, he present, makes a compelling case, presents the evidence that the, the fear of death is the greatest motivational factor in our lives. The fear of death is the greatest motivational force in our lives. It literally shapes who we are. But what's ironic in his presentation, which is probably the most surprising thing about the read, is that while the fear of death is the greatest motivational force in our lives, literally shaping who we are, this influence comes from our denial of what we fear. And I find more and more, and there's no really line of demarcation between believers and unbelievers, I find more and more that people are denying death. We are about denying death. We don't acknowledge it. We don't talk about it. I'm shocked at how many people don't even talk about death unless they're forced to. Do you know that only a small percentage of adults, and again, there is no line of demarcation here between Christians and non-Christians, only a small percentage of adults actually have a will? A significant number of people don't wear their seatbelts. A majority of motorcyclists don't wear a helmet. I could go on and on with different examples. But the point is, we ignore we deny the reality of death. No, we plan our lives. We schedule out months, sometimes even years in advance, under the assumption that we have all the time in the world. 
We spend the rest of our lives attempting to do something that is lasting, trying to be immortal. We have children that we hope will have pleasant memories of us. We achieve awards. We get our names in the paper, have our names printed on bricks, blast plaques, or written in memorial books. We immerse ourselves in entertainment and diversions. If we don't think about it, if we don't acknowledge death, then it isn't real. If we just throw back another drink, pop another pill, eat healthier, exercise more, have another surgery, look the other way, we can cheat death. We will do whatever is necessary to keep from facing our inevitable demise. And what's really scary is that given enough time, given enough practice at it, we will believe the lie. We will begin thinking that our fantasy world is the real thing, that we really can go on forever. But it's no use. We're all still as good as dead. It's just a question of when. And for some of us, when that moment comes, however it comes at us, where we finally face death, I, 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 I'm again disturbed that most of us, if we face death, don't get angry like Moses. Instead, we, most of us respond with resignation to the reality of death. And, and I don't know if you see what I see, but more and more in our culture that denies death, yet's immersed in it, more and more in our culture, there's this trend to see death as somehow being natural. Death is seen as something not that we should fear or get angry about, but more and more we're being taught, we're being exposed to this idea that death is something we should greet, something we should accept. Our culture does all that it can to convince us that death isn't as bad as it seems. Death should be seen as just another human life event, just like, you know, cutting your first tooth. But this is ridiculous. This is insane. Embracing this kind of philosophy in any form is just another form of denial. Another way of escaping the reality of what death really means. Deep down, none of us, deep down, none of us believe that death is morally neutral. We say things when we encounter death like, he was only 34 years old when he died. We say things like, she left behind two young children. We say things like this not because we're trying to convey in any way that death is good. We say such things because we realize, we know that death is not quite right. We know that people shouldn't die at an early age. We know that thousands shouldn't be swept away by a tsunami. We know that children in other countries shouldn't starve. We know it, even as we deny the reality of death. And God's word, beloved, affirms these instincts within us. In the Bible, death is completely and totally unnatural. Death is not what God intended. Death is tragic. It is not part of the original creation. Genesis tells us that death came into creation after sin, not before. The separation of soul and body that takes place at death is not the way that it was supposed to be. We mourn those who die especially those who die prematurely, because we know that God did not create a world of death, disease, and suffering. We know, and that's why death seems like an enemy. It seems like an enemy because it is. Deep down, we know that death is the enemy, and that's why doctors seek to overcome it. Social justice activists seek to stamp it out. The young seek to defy it, and the elderly seek to avoid it. Death is the enemy. It's the ultimate enemy because it cannot be ignored. 
It cannot be avoided. You know, sometimes as Christians, I find more and more you ask people the go- to talk about what's the gospel and kind of explain it. And people will always talk about, in getting to the good news, the problem. As Christians, we often define the greatest problem of this world as being sin. But the truth is, that's not the greatest problem. The greatest problem of this world is death. That's the greatest problem. We can ignore and even avoid sin, but you can't ignore or avoid death. Death is the wages of sin. It is the great final plague of a world gone mad. It is the ultimate pestilence that emerges from the brokenness and sickness of our humanity. It is the inevitable judgment of sin, of a life lived in rebellion from and disobedience to God. And we would do well to remember, as Pharaoh repeatedly continues to ignore, that if the Lord is the giver of life, the author and sustainer of life, then there can be no possibility of anything other than death if we try to exist apart from this God. You ever been driving somewhere? You ever been driving somewhere and you came to a dead end when you were driving? You made a wrong turn and you found yourself with no ability to go forward. Some dead ends even leave us trapped with no place to turn around. Those are the worst. There's nowhere to go. You're stuck. Pharaoh experienced the first nine plagues brought to pass by the Lord's hand. He witnessed as each plague systematically denounced the gods he once believed in, the gods of Egypt, revealed them as impotent. He's continually, repeatedly been confronted with the truth in the midst of the lie, and he just keeps turning away, ducking and dodging until now. Now he finds himself with nowhere else to go. He's staring death in the face. Pharaoh is coming to a dead end, literally. And still, he ignores what is right in front of him. Even the Israelites, even the Israelites who are set apart now will eventually face the same dead end as Pharaoh. On their way out of Egypt, the road to freedom will suddenly take an alarming turn as they find themselves caught between the entire force of the Egyptian army and the formidable power of the Red Sea. Their situation appears hopeless. They would appear to have no recourse. They cannot save themselves. They are staring death in the face. And what will their reaction be? Fear. Fear that leads to resignation. After 430 years of slowly dying in slavery at the hands of a merciless people, they will actually cry out that they would have been better off just staying in Egypt. The best that they can do is trade one dead end for another. The best that they can do is go back to living in denial. Now, if you're familiar with this story, and as we will find out, despite themselves, the Israelites will make it to the other side. They will cross over. They will do nothing in and of themselves to get themselves out of that dead end. And after a little celebrating on the other side, they'll be content to go back to living in denial. It won't take long as they're traveling through the wilderness where they'll reach another dead end and they'll start fantasizing again about the good old days in Egypt. Part of the reason the first thing the Lord does with the Israelites is lead them to the foothills of Mount Sinai is to give them the law. He gives them his law amongst other reasons to show them and to show us the futility of human effort. The law teaches that human efforts lead always to a dead end road. And this dead-end road is the place that we all must come to in order to discover the salvation 
of God. Apart from God on our own, we all come to the same dead end as Pharaoh and the Israelites. Right now, at this very moment, and no one wants to hear this, we're all as good as dead. This tenth plague that is coming to Egypt is the one that we all will face. It's the plague that none of us can resist. This is the plague from which there's no coming back from. This is the plague that challenges everything you believe. This is the plague that makes you reevaluate everything you've lived for. But only if you notice. Only if you acknowledge it. Only if you get angry about it. But most of us, Christians and non-Christians alike, most of us just let the terror of this plague, the terror of death, numb us into a state of blissful ignorance. But here's the sad thing. Here's the, the, the great reversal in the reversal. By ignoring the reality of death, we actually kill ourselves prematurely. If you're not getting my drift, what I'm telling you, what I'm asking you to do is to think about, to reflect on death today. I'm asking you to talk about it, to, to talk to each other. Those you love, have you wrestled with the reality of death in your life? And it's ironic, I'm asking you on a day when you've got the biggest distraction whatsoever to not even go there. You're going to be a hit at your Super Bowl party if you walk in and you're like, so what did the pastor talk about today? Death. Awesome. Great. Have some, have some chips. Your nervous laughter and the response of most people in the room underscores exactly what I'm talking about. No one wants to talk about it. No one wants to face it. And yet, there's no way around it. By ignoring the reality of death, we're actually killing ourselves prematurely. The great war novelist James Jones, the author of From Here to Eternity, was interviewed once by a reporter. And he was asked, how in the middle of the horrors of war do soldiers keep on going? What enables them to fight on? And Jones replied, what you do, what you do is you decide that you are dead. Every soldier I knew in the horrors of war just decides I'm dead. And that enables you to live. You go ahead and die so that you can be surprised when at the end of the battle, you're still alive. Someone once said, maybe you've heard this too, someone once said to me, you know, in order to become a Christian, you have to die. You have to die to become a Christian. But if you stop and think about that for a second, that's not really true. The starting point for a follower of Christ is realizing that you're already dead. We are dead in sin. Wherever sin leaves and leads, and we're all affected by it, is truly a dead-end road, a road that leads to the same place for everyone, the grave. Life without God is a dead-end street. There is no hope of salvaging our lives apart from God. And we need to face that reality rather than to deny that when we are left to our own devices, we are as good as dead. Like Pharaoh, we need to face the reality that we have no viable options but to yield before the power and will of this God. Like the Israelites, we have no choice but to follow God through the water of salvation that only he can provide. Beloved, we need to do this. We're being called by this God, by this story, to do this, to face reality. And beloved, in daring to face what we fear, in choosing to admit what we cannot conquer, by getting angry at death like Moses, we will not remain cold, indifferent victims like Pharaoh. We will be moved to look beyond ourselves. We will discover that there is a way out, 
a mark that can be made, a way for all of this to pass over us, we will remember that the only way to escape a dead end is by facing what is in front of us and turning around and going in a different direction. Beloved, it's only when you realize that you're as good as dead that you can actually move forward into living. It's only when you realize that you're as good as dead that you can move forward into really living. Think about it. If you're on a dead-end street, you have nothing to lose, right? If you're on a dead-end street, you have nothing to lose. You've already lost it all anyway. God hasn't pried our fingers loose yet, but those things that we're holding on to, they're as good as gone. They're not going to go with us. When you realize you don't have anything to lose, you can freely step into the salvation that God has to offer. To put this another way, to challenge what has often become the paraphrase of the gospel in our time, beloved, Jesus didn't come to make good people better. If I hear that from anybody else as being that's what the gospel is, I think I'm going to die. <laughs> Jesus didn't come to make good people better. That's not the gospel. That's not our story. That's not this story. Our gospel, our story is that Jesus came to bring dead people back to life. Dead people back to life. Our story is that Jesus encountered death in a way that none of us have to. He took on the burden of sin and the inevitable cost of death that results. He faced dead death head on, not in ignorance, not in fear, but also not with neutrality or anticipation. Jesus didn't embrace death as a welcome release of the spiritual from the physical. Jesus was sweating drops of blood in Gethsemane. Jesus pleaded with the Father to allow this cup of suffering to pass from him. On the cross, Jesus cried out in agony over the experience of abandonment. For Jesus, death was an enemy. Death was the enemy that threatens the destruction of the whole person. Jesus went to the cross because he knew that his dying was to be the once and for all struggle with death. And through the resurrection, Jesus did not make death into a friend. He made it into a defeated enemy. My brothers and sisters in Christ, dying is a part of life's journey. We all know that. But while we know that dying is a natural part of our life's journey, death, death itself was not and is not meant to be the end of the road. Deep down in our bones, the human spirit insists that death cannot be all there is. But we need to stop ignoring or denying that instinct. Death is senseless and outrageous to the human spirit. We need to stop making death into a friend from trying to make our peace with death. Death is the enemy, and instead, like Moses, we need to start getting angry. Angry, with a burning anger about death. We can and we should face death as an intruder in our lives and in our world. Most of you are probably familiar with this verse from Dylan Thomas, who wrote upon the death of his father. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. We can and we should be angry, not apathetic, not neutral about death. We need to get angry, but our, angry, our anger doesn't have to be unrighteous. It doesn't have to be anger that comes from fear. Because we as people of faith, we as the people of the Exodus can be angry at death, but we can be angry at death in a way that does not come from fear, but comes from hope, comes from outrage. 
We do well to remember that there's a difference between anger that is born of fear. Anger that is born of fear leads to depression. It leads to despair and anxiety. And depression, despair, and anxiety are all minions of death. And they too are the enemy. As people of faith, our anger is righteous anger. It's anger of outrage. It's an anger of hope. Because while death is the enemy, we know, we believe, we declare Jesus is the victor. And because of the victory that Jesus accomplished on the cross, we no longer have to face death as the great enemy. Instead, thanks to Jesus, we can and we should face death with confidence, with hope. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart, because we know that the one who raised Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. The words of Paul defining our anger and yet our righteous anger and anger of confidence and hope at the reality of death. Beloved, we are all coming to the same dead end. But we don't have to pretend not to notice. We don't have to be afraid. There is a way through the waters in front of us. And that way through the waters is heeding the voice of God. The word of grace that comes to us through the Exodus story. We must let our hearts break, our hard hearts, our ignorant hearts, our blind hearts. We must let them be broken. We must let the blood of the lamb, the mark of the victory that comes full circle on the cross of Christ, cover us. Because it's only then, only then that we can truly be free. It is only then when we face our death that we can truly live. Amen.